0: a hundred headcarts. It was crazy. And he, he wouldn't go until they were all up the hill. And it was because he was feeling really strong. And he could tell everybody else was really discouraged. And he wanted to come back and say to everyone, no, this is doable. You can do this. Here's yeah. the tricks, you know. Wow. And I just feel like I I think so many of you have learned that at yeah. Trek, And I did too. Yeah, Jeremy? just real quick. <laughs> I think Sister Montgomery, a a youth in fifth ward, really nailed what for me is the reason we do track. Um, Some things that they learned is, and as adults we learned as well, we can do hard things, and hard things are going to happen in life. Hard things are are around us all the time, but we know that as those hard things come, whether it's a weakness, a sin, or just a rough part of life, we can do hard things. We, we've come through it, and we've achieved something. And that's a big reason why we do this to the youth, is to help them understand that they can do hard things.
1: And, and they don't have those experiences normally. And, and that's why I say, now take that... This is sometimes what I call... This is a wilderness experience. It is the old, It is one of those kind of archetypal things that happens where you go out into a wilderness, you are changed... But what's happening with the youth today is what's happening today. And that is, they had this experience, uh, and, and and you guys had those experiences, but now you go back into the world and you say, this was really amazing. And even people in the church that weren't there go, wow, that sounds really amazing. That, would, that must have been really good. The youth are then saying, yeah, we were in the mud, we were on our face, you know, we were absolutely soaked, Uh we were close to hypothermia and, and and the other kids are going to be going, why would you do that? That's just dumb. And, and they don't get when you try and come back to the world and explain what you did. And so that's why, I, again, the parallel to me, when we start taking a look at what the Savior went through and the part of his sorrow was watching people who didn't get it. And he's trying to change their lives and they don't get it. They don't understand. That sorrow is loving somebody but they won't. Change they won't stop what they're doing. Deb,
0: I just found a great quote from Neil Maxwell. I'd like to share with you. He says, How can you and I really expect to glide naively through life as if to say, Lord, give me experience, but not grief, not sorrow, not pain, not oppression, not betrayal, and certainly not to be forsaken? Keep me from, keep me, keep from me, Lord, all those experiences which made thee what thou art let me come and dwell with Thee and fully share that I want to
1: just somehow have all that knowledge uploaded to me without having to go through the trek to get it. Okay. Well, so now here's what we get with... And I want you to see how Isaiah lays this out and we're kind of going in right in that direction because it, this, ha- this experience has to be personalized to us. Okay. So... He's despised, he's rejected of men, he's a man of sorrows, he's acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. So much of what we're going to find in this chapter is gross unfairness. It is the absolute irony that the man that suffered all these things for us was then rejected by them. And, and I want you to see over and over and over this unfairness rises up, and it's not right, and it shouldn't be happening, and it's not fair. Now, and we've talked about this before, but let me just say it. We don't believe that life is fair, do we? No. We don't think that life should be fair.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, but we do. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we and we'll tell, we'll tell the kids and everybody else, well, life just did not fair. But we really, really, really want good things to happen to good people. And we really, really, really want bad things to happen to bad people. We really, really, really want us that when we keep the commandments and we do in the things that we're supposed to do, that that should result in good things happening to us. And we are affronted by the fact that when we are keeping the commandments and doing the right things, that bad things happen to us. Underlying is this humanness that says, but we should be protected from this because we're doing good things. And there might be some of us, that's why we keep the commandments, to keep the bad stuff at bay. We, this man who was despised, a man of sorrow and We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, which translates to pains. We have sorrows, losses. We have pains. Physical ailments and things. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. I was watching the uh, v- uh, the uh, viewing last night of uh, Bishop Schroeder, and, and and you watch people dealing with grief and loss. And this is a this is a, for those of you who don't know. This is a he was bishop as of what middle of January, and and now the and now you know his funerals this afternoon. So this is an entire ward that is grieving their recent bishop. Who never went back to church after he was, after he was released, went right from being released into the hospital. Uh, and then despite a blessing from a general authority, still this couldn't be reversed. This shouldn't be happening to a great man who served his heart out. Should it? It's not how it's supposed to work. And after everything he's done for everybody else... Why is it now his family has to leave, lose him? Well, it's not fair. Well, surely he hath borne our griefs. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now, that stricken, that word stricken is, is kind of appropriate. That word stricken shows up dozens of times in the book of Leviticus. And it always refers... To lepers always refers to lepers. We are esteeming him as a leper, we're hiding our eyes from him as we would a leper. Surely he hath borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, and we're treating him like a leper. We're ashamed of him, we think he's a hypocrite, we think he's doing dumb things. And we are turning our backs to Him, the very person that is... Why is He sorrowing? For us. Why is He grieving? For us. And we're treating Him as a leper. Yeah. He loved Judas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He he walked with Judas. He you know he spent nights sleeping on the ground, probably close to Judas. You know he loved Judas.
0: I think we feel the same way when we see
1: people we loved. <coughs> That's probably a good parallel. People that we love that are now gone, not among us. Mm-hmm. And certainly, if that it's even if it's even amplified, if those are members of our family or a spouse that we love and we cared for <laughs> and we've served alongside them. And now they're gone. It's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. Because we love them. We want to beat them with a stick. <laughs> but, but we love them. So we did esteem, after everything he did, we esteem him stricken, smitten of God. Meaning, God is smiting, smiting, smiting him somehow. Smiting him. Remember all the members of Sanhedrin that uh, the savior used to say. Well, we just think he's full of the devil. He's be- we think your your uh, king is Beelzebub. Okay, that's the way it was treated. That was the atmosphere of this man who was uh, a man of sorrows. But notice the parallel. He was despised, rejected. We esteemed him not. That's why I've got the color coded. I need you to see how the how the Hebrew poetry is trying to drive home the point. We didn't esteem him as a leper. That is why we hid our faces from him. That's why for a lot of people, Jesus is not welcome in their home. Now, I stand at the door and knock. They're not letting me in. Why? Because my words are going to cause great guilt in you and we don't want that kind of guilt. The number one, why are Christians oft times so hated? If, if people are going to despise us as they despised him, why would people despise Christians as people are trying to do the right thing and love their families and keep the commandments and all that? Why would anybody despise a Christian?
0: stark contrast.
1: It is a stark contrast.
0: Because it, when you're doing right and you're doing wrong, you feel
1: bad. Yeah, and if I feel bad, then what am I expecting from you? Well, don't
0: be righteous.
1: Sister. Yeah, you're going to be all, all up righteous. You're going to judge me. Yeah. Christians are rigid and judgmental mean people. Absolutely.
0: And sometimes they
1: are. <laughs> sometimes they are.
0: Because
1: you're wicked and bad and you're going to hell. Yeah. But even at our most loving moments, the the expectation for those that have put themselves outside of that is a sense of you're going to judge me. You're going to put me down. Okay, I'm waiting for that. I'm expecting that. Why? Not because of what you're going to do, but because of what I feel, what I expect. And at some levels, what I suspect should happen to me. You should judge me. I'm being pretty bad. Even if I'm glorying in it, he was despised; we we esteemed him not. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But in the midst of all of this, so here's this one: we're going to say he was wounded for our transgressions; (laughs) he was bruised for our iniquities. Bruised meaning. The, the, the word there really is crushed. Which makes plenty of sense when, when we talk about uh, the, the fact that when we take uh, uh, grapes and, they are, and they're put into the vineyard and, and the weight, either of someone walking on it or the, or the stone that pushes down on it and it crushes it and out comes uh, red juice. The, the blood, he was bruised, he was crushed. And, and you get that, almost that image of him in Gethsemane and the, the weight of the sins are pressing down on him and what happens is he's being crushed. He bleeds. It just, his, his physical body could not withstand the strain of the sorrows and pains that he was feeling. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, but with his stripes we are healed. Now I want you to notice something though. Here's what's going to happen Here's what happens in this little stanza. I don't want to spend too much time on how to interpret poetry because I didn't graduate in English, and some of you would be much better at this than I would be. But I want you to notice what he did. He says, first of all, in the top part, he's a man of sorrows, he's acquainted with grief. Then followed, Then the next green is the next stanza. Surely he hath borne our griefs. It's going to take it from broad. Here's what he was feeling. Sorrow and grief. And now he was bruised for our grief. And carried whose sorrows? Our sorrows. Our sorrows. <laughs> so it's not just general. And so you get this tapering down. And the expectation is, is that as you're reading this, the reader... The idea is not just to say, gee, he felt a lot of pain. We're supposed to be, as we narrow it down, we recognize, gee, he felt my pain. Specifically, he felt my pain. Wow, he felt a lot of sorrows. But specifically, he feels my sorrows. He feels my grief. He's experiencing my pain. The idea is that we're supposed to personalize this. That's why he was wounded, not just for transgressions, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. This idea of, of making his sacrifice personal to us is, sometimes, is, is beyond our capacity sometimes to understand. But when we're in the middle of pain and struggle if we had talked to those kids on Friday night while they're sitting in their tents muddy and exhausted and cold I think they would understand some things about struggle and suddenly it's personalized. And when we're at our extremities, that's when we pray. That's the moment when we turn to Him when we are in the midst of of our struggles and our hurting. And we go, now I'm ready. Now teach me. Now save me. And we get it. In a way that we don't always get it other than that. So I think the whole idea here, especially in the first part of Isaiah 53, is make this about you. Make what he did about you. It's your stripes. It's, it's his stripes, his pains, healing your sorrows and your griefs. Now, here's where I think our battle lies. And let, let me just take one little quick jog here. I think sometimes our ability to do this, the hardest part about our grieving, what happens if our grieving, if our sorrows that He's going to heal us, what if that involves having been hurt by somebody else? What if our pain is the result of somebody else's actions? <coughs> And then we're told, "We're how, how often are we supposed to forgive them?
0: 70, 70 times,
1: times seven. 7. Ouch. What if somebody hurt us and has caused us pain and they're certainly not repentant about it? Or they don't know about it? Or they couldn't care less?
0: I wish I kept a paper that I read that it was talking about how if God is a fair and just God and He provides a way for someone who sins sins against another person can receive forgiveness why would he allow the person who has been hurt or injured to suffer and the rest of their life?
1: Yeah, well because somebody's thoughtless act in terms of, let's say a drunk driver, suddenly the, the, their little thoughtless actions and somebody then spends the rest of their life parallel, paralyzed, mm-hmm. or uh, they lose a loved one now a family is grieving the loss of somebody because of somebody's thoughtless action, and maybe the guy's sitting in prison and couldn't care less.
0: Well, I, I think it related a lot to being uh, sexually abused or something like that, and Perfect so many example. times when people are sexually abused, it it ruins the rest of their life, and that's not what Heavenly Father wants.
1: No, no. in fact, uh, sisters, statistics would say that about a third of you have had that experience. Some kind of uh, uh, sexual molestation at some level. Even in the church, it's about a third. So that, that is a... It's a and, and the effect it has uh, throughout the rest of your life, there will be a lot of people here that could talk about that. Okay? Okay, so real quickly, when we're talking about uh, forgiveness using the savior as the model because here's the hardest part I think about we're going to carry his sorrows but part of our sorrows is our ability to then let go of the stuff that people have hurt us it's with our, our own stripes our own pains that we're having to extend forgiveness uh, I did not want to spend too long on this but I thought I would just throw this in free of charge
0: uh,
1: four, four, uh, four stages of forgiveness first of all is to forego that means to let it go. Have to start letting go so that you're not thinking about it quite so much when you've been hurt. Forbear. That means stop punishing behaviors. That means I'm not gonna. I'm gonna quit being snarky, or ignoring, or avoiding, or isolating from, or making you pay. I'm gonna make you pay a lot consistently. Okay, you've got to begin to forego that, and then forbear it. Stop punishing. Then forget. Refuse to dwell and revisit on this. And then finally, forgive. <coughs> Abandon the emotional... something. <laughs> Abandon the emotional... I know. Dead. Yes. And forgive. Abandon the emotional debt. And that's really easy to say, but that's why I say there's a process here of learning how to forgive. Yeah?
0: Well, I think that's... I, I mean, I know we should
1: do all that. <laughs> yes. But, but do we forgive? That's what's kind of hard. Maybe feel like we And how do we forgive? Does, does that forgive? I think we always kind of remember. I don't think there's a way a way for us to not to remember... Uh, also sometimes too, and this is a topic for another time, but sometimes people hold off on forgiveness just because it means that now I have to begin trusting them again completely. And trust takes a lot longer. And some people should never be trusted. I can forgive them, I just never trust them again. And then I haven't forgiven. Well, no. You forgive, you, you love them, you care about them, but you're just not, some people have proven that they're not trustworthy. Yeah. Well, after forget up there,
0: after- you have Yeah. So you probably never gonna really forget. I mean, it will be in your brain forever. Right. But the
1: refusal to dwell and revisit is uh, is probably. And this is as hard as anything that I know. It it absolutely is. And and it may be one of the greatest sorrows that we struggle with. Okay. (coughs) Finally. Let's turn to, uh, well, we're, we're all the way to Isaiah 53, verse 6. <laughs> now, talking about all of these, then, then Isaiah's going to say, all we like sheep have gone astray. Okay, I understand that. Thank you. <laughs>
0: That.
1: How do sheep go astray? Isn't don't we like carefully take care of sheep? Sheep's in the sheepfold. No. Why would they wander?
0: They, they need to eat. And so as you go out into the meadows, you take them out of the meadows and they find a little food here and they move over here and find a little more food. And,
1: and they are they're just looking for good food. Yeah, yeah, they're looking, right. And
0: the grass looks greener
1: over there. It always looks better over there, right? So rather than stay here in the sheepfold, that it isn't like they it isn't we're not talking about goats. They just say, if you're telling me to go there I refuse. They're, they're being sheep-like, which is, like you say, they're just kind of that look good, and then that look good over there, and that look good over there. And I'm just going to keep on wandering. Okay, that's why it, it, the the term they've gone astray. They didn't mean to get lost. They didn't mean to leave the ninety and nine, but they were looking to be fed. And I just the image of that is just is just terrific. Okay. They all, all we, and again, we're going to go personalized and then we're going to go to the Savior. All we, like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, Elohim, hath laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Because in our wanderings those things when we're going to be fed in other places we cross over from weaknesses into sins that need that needed that now now watch this watch how Isaiah does this so you get this I get this vision of sheep that are wandering and being where they're not supposed to be now he's going to bring it back to the Savior and give you a parallel image verse 7 he was oppressed he was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the shearer. He also is a sheep. But in this case, this is a lamb. Not a sheep, a lamb. Get this humble little... Lambs are less likely to wander, right? Lambs are going to stay close to mama. So this is a lamb who's being brought uh, to the slaughter. And in the same way as the sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Now, at one level, this is, this is referring specifically to a moment in time, and that's when?
0: Crucifixion.
1: Dur- during the, the trial prior to his crucifixion, where some he's going to talk to, some he just refuses to address. Like he talked to Pilate. What is truth?" Okay, let me tell you about it, okay? But some, like the Sanhedrin, he wouldn't even say a word. Certainly to Herod. He wouldn't even honor Herod. He, he, in some cases, he's not going to say a word. Okay, But he's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. He meekly is going to go about what needs to be done here. And, and so rather than wander away, he's going to stay close. And so get, you get the contrast between the two? Wandering sheep over here and the lamb that meekly comes to being slaughtered for all the right reasons. And I, I just it's beautiful the way that that happens. Okay, now. A couple of things here. Like I said, we can keep on... There's so much here. Uh. Verse 8. He was taken from prison and from Judgment. He would, in other, as part of his trial, because now we're getting into the trial part of this. Okay, he's going as a lamb to be slaughtered. Now he's taken from judgment. Meaning what? From
0: Pilate.
1: Yeah. yeah. What about with Pilate? <coughs> what was just about his trial prior to his crucifixion? Nothing. Absolutely. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing.
0: nothing.
1: Absolutely nothing. Was he subjected to judgment? No, he was taken from judgment. He was judged unrighteously. So, this, this, this being who was the author of the law is not even being subjected to the law. They're making it up as they go because they want to make sure. And they're not supposed to be doing it on uh, Passover, they're not supposed to be doing it on the Sabbath day. They're just doing it in the middle of the night. There's, and we can go through all the reasons why it was unjust. But he's taken from judgment. That's why I'm saying, so much of what Isaiah 53 is saying to us is how, how uh, uh, unfair all of this was. To this one who went through all these sorrows. He was taken from judgment, prison and judgment. And who shall declare his generation He was cut out of the land of the living for the transgression of his people. He was stricken. Okay? Now, who shall declare his generation? Say that one differently. He's going to be judged. Who's going to declare his generation? Means what?
0: Who's going to stand up for
1: him? Who's going to stand up and who will tell the story? Who's going to declare what happened? Nobody's going to believe this report. Who's going to declare this generation to this generation? What happened here? Okay.
0: Kevin. Yeah. I heard a rabbi speak of this, and he says this. He refers to Israel.
1: I know. Yeah. Well, we should we should point out that all, this this song of the suffering servant, uh, Jews, and uh, believe that this is all about Israel. And you know what? There are some aspects of this that you look at kind of the wandering Jews and those that have been scattered and the stuff that they've been through. They've certainly suffered. But they kind of step over the obvious to try and get to that symbolism. Yeah, they do. They think this is that. that. Hmm. Okay? Uh, I'm going to let uh, Abinadi <laughs> give us a commentary on this. Mosiah 15.10. Oh, because part of the problem here who shall declare his generation the idea is is that uh, look at verse 10 when he shall make his soul an offering for sin he shall see his seed in other words the part of for the savior is that who's going to declare what's happened to him he's going to say part of what will come out of this for him is that he's going to see his seed and the question is well who's his seed well, Abinadi is going to tell us. Because remember, King Noah, he, this is what he's hitting King Noah with, with, is with Isaiah. Verse 10. Now, and now I say unto you, who shall declare his generation? Behold, I say unto you, that when his soul hath made an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Why, would it, why is it important to talk about who's going to declare this and then start talking about his seed? What difference does his seeing his seed make?
0: Would it help give him strength to do what he has to do? That
1: makes it easier, absolutely.
0: I think that his seed would be the ones who would declare it. There you go. There you it. go.
1: Does that make sense? Why it becomes important, who will declare his generation? He's going to say, he'll see his seed, and his seed will be the ones who will give the report. Mm-hmm. His seed will be the ones that, that are going to, in this generation, tell people about what he did. That's what his seed do. Again, back to the Trek thing. The kids were trying to go back and connect with, the, with, their, with their pioneer heritage. Uh, who's going to declare what they did? Well, we are. And and seed specifically means that when we accept the Savior, when we are converted, we become the sons and daughters of Christ. Right? We are begotten by Him. Okay? And that's what He's going to say. Who'll declare His generation? I say unto you that when his soul hath made an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. And what shall he say? Who shall be his seed? 11. I say unto you, Noah, Alma, who is sitting in the crowd there. I'm going to say unto you guys. Whosoever hath heard the words of the prophets. When's General Conference coming? Ah. Whosoever hath heard the prophets. Yea, all the holy prophets who have prophesied concerning the coming of the Lord, all those who hearken unto his words, believe that the Lord would redeem his people, uh, and have looked forward to the day for remission of our sins. Okay, how we doing so far? How we doing, seed? Okay. I say unto you, these are his seed, or they are the heirs of the kingdom of God. For these are they whose sins are he hath borne, have carried their sorrows, have been bruised for our iniquities. These are they whose sins he has borne. These are they for whom he has died to redeem them from their transgressions, and now are they not his seed. And the comforting part, if you go back, to Isaiah is verse ten. It has pleased the Lord to bruise him, he hath put him to grief, and when she he shall make his soul an offering for sin, not only will, will there be seed that will report what has happened, but what but he will see his seed. Meaning he will see us. He will see us and will know that we are declaring his name, that we are declaring his generation. Who hath believed his report? We have. His seed have. We do. And I and I there has to be it had to be an element for him. Verse eleven. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Now, in a very personal way, if you go back and you kind of research the word travail, a lot of times in the scriptures, and sometimes in in common literature, travail is used in a very specific place. Women giving birth. birth.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And if you can use that image with, with these words that were specifically chosen he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied one of the things that we as men will never understand is the experience of a mother who has gone through the travail of birth and the moment when that babe is now take, taken and laid upon your breast? That's something we can only look at as men on the outside and look in. But it's something that you understand. Are you then, you're exhausted, you're hurting, you're tired. Are you satisfied? Yeah, there's, there's a bonding. You know, chemically, the body suddenly starts secreting oxytocin, which is the body's bonding chemical that helps the milk draw down. But there is a sense of having travailed for and brought this child into life. And at, and at that moment, it's all worth it. Yeah. Until they turn two or 13, and then you're not sure. not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's but that's the image. That's why I say if you read this quickly, you're going to miss it. Read it slowly and get what he's saying. And now picture this travail of going. And he's going to say, "He shall see the travail of his soul." Look at twelve. Uh, we get past, uh, we're going to divide his portion with the great, divide his spoil with the strong. Yep, this is the the, the soldiers dividing his robe. Okay. But uh, he had, because he had poured out his soul unto death, in order to give birth, what happens? Your body literally has to go through the valley of the shadow of death to bring forth. And a lot of times the mom is at a, as much at risk as the child can be if there's complications. It's this travail of the soul. And he says at some level, because he's understood all of this, this this is the struggle he's talking about. I have gone through all of this pain and bleeding for you. That's the travail. So, Oh, oh, absolutely! <laughs> yeah, the the, it, it, the the more the more you look at this chapter, it's like every line is just laden with his experience. But you begin to see uh, that uh, he lived among, he spent time among the great, Herod the Great, you know, Pilate, all these guys. Um, he can divide his spoil with the strong. But in. Sorry, okay, I think that
0: divide his spoil with the strong. I mean, everyone is still uh, benefited by his sacrifice. Everyone was still resurrected.
1: So even those that were mm-hmm. strong against him were still. Isn't that the irony? <laughs> the, the irony is that after he walked through Gethsemane, then he walked out, now he runs through the indignity of the Sanhedrin. The wicked Sanhedrin, or the wicked Herod, or the wicked—you know—but he paid for their sins and transgressions as well. There's nothing fair about this, there's no one. There's no justice here. He was taken from the land of justice, and yet he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Well, brothers and sisters, there's so much here. Uh, like I say, this to me is kind of the kind of the apex of of Isaiah. We get to this point. We we'll probably have one more class on it next week. Maybe. That
0: word "my" there is that Isaiah referring to himself that Christ was serving him as he
1: my my where verse eleven verse eleven by his knowledge shall my righteous servant all oh. uh, the, the part of what makes this a little bit difficult is that sometimes you have to look at sometimes when it says Lord it'll mean Jehovah and sometimes it means Elohim. And so in this sense, he is, this is my servant, my son. So this is Elohim saying, my righteous servant. Yeah, yeah, it's heavenly father, right. And by his knowledge shall my son justify many, he will bear their iniquities. Okay, how we doing? Waiting pretty good? Heavy heavy stuff? Pretty good. But, but a description of this great Savior that we, that we worship and that we revere and that we love. Um, I pray that as we go through these things, slow down, read it, pick out these words, allow the images to come to your mind, again, like poetry, and you're going to begin to see and identify with him because he's going to use words that will make sense and understanding to us. I pray that we can do that, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.